2 Kings 5, I'll be reading 2 Kings 5, 13 and 14. And the servants came near and spoke to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he says to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped seven times in the Jordan, according to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. It really is a joy to be with you this morning and to see each of you here. And I think I've said this the first time I was up after we went mask optional, how delightful it is to be able to walk into this building and actually see people smiling back at me. Um, Otherwise, before that, if you were wearing a mask, you may have been smiling, but I didn't know that. I was like, why are you squinting at me? But but you're here and you're smiling this morning and I'm, I'm delighted to be with you. By the way, I say this every now and then, but I want to remind you and myself that I I consider it a tremendous privilege to be able to stand on a weekly basis and to present the unsearchable riches of Christ to to each of you. I I appreciate your seriousness about your spiritual growth and your Christian walk, and I'm grateful for that. I speak as a dying man to dying men. One of the tremendous privileges that we have as we gather here every time we worship is, of course, the primary purpose is to worship God. I hope we always understand that. It's, it's not to entertain or be entertained. It's not even to, to fellowship with one another. That's not the primary purpose. It's to worship God. But, but the secondary purpose is to fellowship and, and to enjoy the association that we have with one another, to edify one another, to build one another up in the most holy faith. And I, I think that we're all very much aware of that fact, and we're all grateful for any opportunity that we have to do that. We, we have that opportunity to come into a place, really, and experience a transformation every time we worship. And here's what I mean by that. We may come in feeling one way and leave feeling completely a completely different way. I don't know if you've had that experience, but I have that experience quite often. I'm always glad that I came. I'm always uplifted by being with you, whether it's for a Bible class or whether it's here for our worship. So we may come in burdened, but we leave with the weight of that burden left behind. We may come in sad or down, but we leave with with joy in our hearts and a smile on our lips. We come in with our thinking out of place, and we leave with a clear mind and straight thinking. We get our priorities realigned because of our time that we spend here together. Listen to a couple of biblical admonitions along those lines, if if you will. Romans 14, 19 reads like this. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and mutual Edification. I remind you that the word edification there in the English translation simply means to build one another up. So that, that's what we have in mind. And then there's 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11 is equally clear. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, as in fact you are doing. And so Paul was commending the Thessalonian church because of the fact that they were already doing that. They came together, building one another up, encouraging one another And once they were together, they left that meeting with a greater desire and a greater impetus to live God's will out in their lives. Our worship should not just be an empty exercise. We we ought not to be just coming in here and going through the motions, and I think we all understand that. It ought to move us and motivate us to do what is good and right in the sight of God. And I mean every day. 
not just while we're in the building. What we do here during this time ought to motivate us and equip us to live for God every single day of the week. Because remember, no matter what the preacher says or a teacher of a class may say or even what your spouse may say, motivation is something that ultimately comes from within your own heart. I've said that before, but I want to hit that again because I think we really need to appreciate that. We can encourage one another, but motivation is an inside job. If I'm going to be motivated, perpetually motivated every day, I'm going to have to make sure that Randy takes that responsibility. I'm going to have to make sure that I stay motivated, and you have to do the same in your own Christian walk. Let me give you a quick example of that. There was a horse race that took place out west. Three-fourths of the way into the race, one of the horses fell and broke its leg. Now, that's not the worst part. It fell on the jockey that was riding it and broke his leg. Well, amazingly, the jockey jumped up with a broken leg and finished the race. And not only that, ahead of all the other horses. Well, after the race, of course, an incredulous reporter asked the jockey, what gave you the motivation to win that race? And the jockey replied, well, it's real simple. When my horse fell, the track manager saw that his leg was broken, so he pulled out his gun and he shot the horse in the head. And then he turned to me and he said, how's your leg feel? (laughs) There are all kinds of things that motivate us in life. And we have to make sure that the right things are in place and that we are constantly motivated to do God's will. The point is, if you have proper motivation, you can do just about anything. Now, there are fundamentally three levels of motivation, and I want to kind of build this foundation, then we're going to move on, and and I hope you'll keep your Bible open to 2 Kings chapter 5, because we're coming right back to that passage. Three things, basically, psychologists will tell you this, but you don't have to take a psychology course to know this, three basic motivations that may be in play in our lives. And the first one is, is, is fear. And let me go ahead and identify that as the lowest and the least effective level of motivation. And you might be thinking, well, you haven't been as afraid as I have been in certain situations. And I would probably say, I bet I have. But the problem with fear is, and I think we all recognize this, that fear will only motivate us for a limited amount of time. And it's just a fact of of human nature. You cannot run scared forever. So while fear is a legitimate motivation, it is not the best one. In fact, it's probably the the least effective of the three that we're going to mention. So fear will only drive a person for so long. And, And let's go ahead and make the transition. That's true of our spiritual motivation as well. It's true of everything in life, but especially true of our spiritual motivation. Some serve God out of, out of a fear of being lost and going to hell. Let's just face it. That, that's the reality. That's the primary motiva- motivating force in their lives. Why, why do you do what you do? Why do you live for God? Well, I'm afraid I'd be lost if I didn't do these things or stay away from certain things. Now, we need to know that God does move us with fear at times in our lives. So I'm not asking you to erase this as any legitimate possibility as a motivation. God does move us to fear. If we turn our hearts away from God, we, em- we embrace spiritual death. A- and that ought, to, that ought to create fear within us. Proverbs 1.7, we're familiar with that proverb. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So fear has a place. 
And then there's Psalm 96 and verse 4. For, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. That is, as in comparison with the fictitious gods out there. And then finally, Psalm 112 verse 1. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. But the second kind of fear, in addition to, or kind of motivation, in addition to fear, it, some are motivated by reward. And that just makes sense as well because that's the way we're wired psychologically as human beings. Now, on the spiritual side of things, there's, did you know there's a lot of people who are motivated to live the Christian life because they want to go to heaven? Isn't that amazing? A lot of people want to go to heaven. And let me go ahead and say, I am one of those people. I am looking very much forward to going to heaven. And I hope you are too. Just think about it. A place where there's no more sickness. We never have to make an announcement about anyone having cancer. A place where there's no disease. For some of you, a place where there's no homework, there's no hassles, there's no politicians, I mean politics. That was Freudian. And for others of you, there's no braces or rubber bands. But most of all, a place where there is no death. Never go to another funeral. Listen to John describe that wonderful place in the very last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, this is the words of God himself. Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he's done. And the third, the most powerful motivation of all, is love. You may have already thought about that, and if so, I pat you on the back. It's the attitude of how much, not how little, can I do for the Lord. It's the maximum that I can do for God and not the minimum. 1 John 3.18 says, let us not love with, with word or tongue, but in deed and truth. And, and we read that passage. We have to ask ourselves if we have any spiritual sensitivity about us at all, am, am I walking the talk? Am I just living the Christian life by, by what I say with, with my tongue? Or am I actually doing on a daily basis those things that God would have me to do? So all three of these motivations are designed to move us to make a choice about Jesus and let me assure you that he is ready to make a change in your life if that change is, is needed and necessary. Remember Paul's declaration in Romans 6 verse 17? As he's talking to those Roman Christians and he says, But thanks be to God that, that though you were slaves of sin, past tense, you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So at one point you were slaves of sin. But you have been emancipated, you have been liberated, you have been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ so that you can live the kind of life that God wants you to live. And you can realize the potential that God has placed, the seeds of greatness that he's placed within each of us. So God is ready to make that change in our lives. But, and there's always an exception that we have to mention, that there are two things that might stand in the way of our making that change or allowing that change to be made in our lives. And the first one is, is a biggie. And I hope that you either write this down or at least put it somewhere in your brain so that you will be able to carry this with you. And that is very simply, biblically speaking, an unwillingness to repent. Isn't that the major problem with most of our world today? Even with, if they have an understanding of God's word and his will, are you willing to repent of the way you've been doing things and make the conscious decision that I'm going to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. 
In the very first gospel sermon ever preached, you may remember that Peter told those people on the day of Pentecost that you need, number one, to repent. And then he said, and be baptized for the remission of your sins. And, and, and repent just means to have a new mind, which results in new action and new life. And you may ask, isn't repentance walking down the road one way and then turning around and, and walking in the opposite, doing a 180? Walking in the opposite direction from which you have been going. And my response to that question would be, yes, that is a part of it. Now, we talked about that, I think, about a month ago. But that's just a part of it. You see, here's why. Because you can turn around and you can change your direction without ever changing your heart. I mean, people do it all the time. So the motivation needs to be, the proper motivation needs to be there as well. True biblical repentance isn't just a change in direction. It's motivated the way and and, and for the means by which God would have in mind for us. Let me give you an example of that. You may be holding a clear glass of liquid on a hot summer day. And and I have some inside information that would be very helpful for you before you drink any of that liquid. And so I can do one of two things. I can either knock that glass out of your hand and I can remove the present danger. Or I can tell you, now, don't drink that. It may look like a cool glass of water, but in reality, it's hydrochloric acid. And then I rely on you to make the right choice. You see, that, that kind of dynamic is in play in our lives all the time. There are some frustrated people out there who've changed their actions but they haven't ever really changed their minds. True repentance is changing our minds about something that then will result in a change of action. But but here's a a second thing that can keep us from changing, in addition to our unwillingness to repent. And I'm not just talking about the world out there. This is something every one of us as, as God's people need to work on too, to make sure our hearts are sensitive and malleable, and that when we see and we were made aware of sin in our lives that we immediately are willing to confess that and make it right. But here's a second thing as well, and that's just simply a lack of faith in Jesus. True biblical faith is more than just saying, hey, I believe that Jesus is God's son. In John 12, 42, we find an example of that. The Bible says many of the, many of the rulers believed in him, that's, that's Jesus, believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him. So whatever was going on in in their lives and in their hearts, that wasn't true repentance because they weren't willing to follow through by actually following Jesus and making that change, allowing God to make that change in their lives. So true biblical faith is more than just saying, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. Once we truly believe that Jesus is Lord and that he is the only answer for our lives we, we don't have to beg people to be baptized. We don't have to plead with wayward Christians to recommit their lives to God and, and to get serious about living their lives for him. Whatever has held you back from following Jesus, I simply ask one question. Why won't you trust him? Some people trust technology more than they trust the Lord. You know, they'll ask Siri or Alexa a question and assume they have been given the correct answer. But they don't trust Jesus to direct their lives from earth to heaven. So some of the world today have truly trusted in Jesus, and some haven't. I have a word of two for both of those categories of people. The lesson I want us to appreciate is about a loving leper 
and, and pardon the lack of political correctness, a lying loser. And we're going to say the second of those for next Sunday morning, Lord willing. This morning, I want to look at a leper. This is an old, old story, but it illustrates the points that I've been seeking to make this morning. So if you've got your Bible open to 2 Kings chapter 5, then, then you're ready to go. 2 Kings 5, notice, opens with these words. Now, Naaman, and even though you know the story, please do not assume anything until we get to the end. Now, Naaman was commander of the army of the, of the king of Aram. And he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram and he was a valiant soldier so far so good. So please appreciate that this is, Naaman was a man of, of great position, highly favored by his master, the, the Bible says. He was a man of courage. He was well respected by those under his command and then those who were his superiors also respected him in, in like fashion. He was a man who was out in front leading the fight. He was big and strong and tough and we'll see more about that in just a moment. And although he was a great and respected man, he had a big problem. And you may be thinking, since you know the story, that is an understatement. That's the biggest understatement since Noah looked out the window and said, Hun, it looks like rain. This is a big understatement. The Bible says, but he was a leper. Now, most of you know that leprosy was a skin disease of the worst kind. It was painful. It was unsightly, disgusting, really. And it was regarded as a disgrace. I'm talking it was an awful thing. Oftentimes, fingers and toes, lips and nose and ears would fall off. That's how heinous and how destructive that disease was. And, and, and if it was contagious, you had to live in isolation. And that's where the term leper colonies comes from. So the story of Naaman began really, really well. And if we just stopped with verse 1, we would say, hey, I wouldn't mind being Naaman. I wouldn't mind being respected by everybody, both those who work for me and those who I work for. Everybody was uh, considered this a courageous man and a good man. So when we read verse 1, we think it'd be great to be Naaman. What a position to have. But four, four little words mess all that up. And the words are, but he had leprosy. They kind of change our minds and our attitudes about Naaman in a heartbeat, don't they? All of a sudden, I'm not willing to change places with Naaman anymore. Now, we don't know how Naaman got leprosy because the text doesn't tell us. But we do know that he desperately, I mean desperately, needed a cure. Now, here's a side note. Naaman was one of the good guys. And I want to point that out. But he still had something, he had something missing in his life. You may be a really good person, too. You may ta pay your taxes on time. You don't do drugs. You're good to your family. You're well-respected down where you work. But remember, we all, we all are sinners, and, and we all fall short of the glory of God. So every one of us, let's go ahead and get that out of the way. Every one of us has a sin problem. And like Naaman, we need a cure for that spiritual sickness. And also appreciate that Naaman could not save or cure himself. And I can say the exact same thing, and so can you, about our sin problem. God has to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, is one way to say it. But all of us have a sin problem, and all of us need to be cured, and we need to get that right up in the front of our minds as we walk through the rest of this passage. Now look at verses 2 through 5, if you will. Bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a, a young girl from Israel. 
And she now served Naaman's wife. So here's an Israelite maid working for Naaman's wife, probably as, as a house servant of some sort. But, but she said to her mistress, because she knows people back in Israel. And she said to her mistress one day, if my master, that's Naaman, would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman hears that. He immediately goes to the king and told him what the girl from Israel had said. And the king of Aram replied, well, you know, it's worth a try. Get ready and go. I'll personally send a letter of introduction to the king of Israel, and maybe that will bear some weight, and it will at least open some doors. And so Naaman left, the Bible says, taking with him, now don't miss this, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. We're talking here about 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold. And I'm not going to give you the monetary value of all of those things because I don't know especially about the clothing. But with today's market, the gold alone would be worth $4.5 million. In fact, a little in excess of that number. So he is really carrying some serious money in his wallet. What, what's Naaman trying to do? Isn't this a good place to stop and ask that? He's anticipating going to, to meet this prophet in Israel. And what is he trying to do? I, I tell you what I think he's trying to do. I think he's going and he's going to try to negotiate a cure for his leprosy. He's going to go and try to buy a cure. And, and it's time for the ancient equivalent of let's make a deal. You know what I'm talking about. And, and that's, how a lot of people, that's how a lot of people want to come to God. They want to come to God and, and they want to make a deal. Let's negotiate. It's a matter in their minds, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. You just name a fair price, I'll pay it, and we're good to go. I think that's at least a part of what was going on in Naaman's mind. But here's the kicker. Receiving divine healing from God. Are you listening, church? Receiving divine healing from God is, is all about grace. And not about how much are you willing to pay. Or even how much are you willing to work for that matter. And the Bible says that the king of Israel gets upset when he gets this letter from the king of Aram. Because clearly the impression is given that the king of Aram himself is, is supposed to be the one to heal this guy. And, and he can't possibly heal Naaman of his leprosy. He knows that. And so he just thinks, what, what are they trying to do? I think he's trying to make trouble, create some, some schisms, some dissonance between these two countries. And then look at verses 8 and 9. When Elisha, the man of God, the prophet that the servant girl was talking about, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes in consternation, he sends him this personal message. And here's what the message says. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. Folks, this is good stuff. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots, and he stopped at the door of Elisha's home. By the way, a commander of, of this rank would never go anywhere without his secret service detail. And so I can picture Naaman with all of these soldiers out in front of him and pulling his chariot up to Elisha's front door. And then in verse 10, look at cl closely at verse 10, if you will, Elisha does not even bother to go out and, and greet him. He sends a messenger outside his front door who says, basically, so you're Naaman? 
you're the guy who's looking for a cure, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and you'll be cleansed. Now, bye-bye. And the servant disappears inside, back inside the house. Look at how Naaman reacts. He's absolutely furious. He throws a fit. Nobody is supposed to treat a commander of the army in that fashion. And notice what comes out of Naaman's mouth and see if this sounds at all familiar. This is verses 11 and 12. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God. Wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of, of Israel? That would include the Jordan River, by the way. Couldn't I just wash in them and be cleansed? And then the Bible says, and he turned and went off in a rage, not just slightly upset. He went away in a rage. Now, there are two words. I have to mention this before we get through with this study. There are two words here that can get us all into trouble when we're dealing with God. And they're the words... I thought, God, I thought you were going to do this, and instead you did that. God, I thought you were going to answer my prayer this way, but instead you answered it that way. Isn't it amazing how we can complicate things with our own expectations? I mean, we do it all the time. It doesn't matter where we are on that spiritual growth spectrum. If we're not very careful, we can, we can go to God with the basic same kind of plea. But, but God, I thought. This was how it was going to happen. So Elisha has told Naaman, albeit through a third party, to go dip and you'll be clean. But Naaman just wants to argue. So here's really the, the, the beginning place of, of this experience. And Naaman apparently would rather argue with the word of the Lord than to obey a simple command. Aren't you glad that that never happens today? <laughs> Not. People want to argue with God all the time. I've been in conversations with people, in Bible studies with people, and we get to the part about being baptized for the remission of sins, and they, and they hesitate on the edge of the baptistry, but, 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 but I don't think you have to do that. Are you going to argue with, with God's word about the matter, or are you just going to do what he said? It was a very simple command. Look at verses 13 and 14 now. Naaman's servant went to him and said, My father, if the prophet, by the way, all kinds of kudos to this servant, Right? I mean, he had the courage to go to his own master and correct him about something. But he has more faith than Naaman does at this point. My father, and, and more common sense, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? I mean, you don't even have to write those instructions down. You'll remember them all the way to the Jordan River. And, and so he went down. That's Naaman. He went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him and his flesh was restored and became like that of, a, some versions say, of a little child and others say of a young boy. Naaman probably felt foolish dipping in that water, but to his credit, he did it anyway. Now, the last thing I want us to do this morning is to take a look at the real miracle in this story. L look at verse 15. The Naaman... And all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in, in, in Israel. Please accept now a gift from your servant. And I'm going to call your attention to that last statement because it is so very important. Please accept a gift from your servant. Watch what has not happened. Naaman did not immediately go back home and brag to his family. Isn't that what you would have done? 
especially as a leper, if you had not been able to see, be with, or touch and hug your family in who knows how long, maybe months or even years, I would have gone home and I would have told my family, you will not believe what kind of day I had. He didn't do that. Bible says he goes straight back to the man of God, to Elisha, climbs out of his chariot and says, please accept a gift from your servant. Do not miss that. I hope you saw that. He had come to buy a cure, at least to negotiate a cure, but now that he's been cleansed, he wants to give away everything that he brought. But he didn't charge you anything. I know, but I want to give it to him anyway. He's now not seeking to buy a cure. He is now incredibly grateful and appreciative for the fact that he's been cured. Please appreciate the difference. What a powerful concept this is. And here's the contemporary application. A Christian does things because he wants to and not because he has to. When we're given an opportunity... To give to the work of God as we have this morning. Each, each Lord's Day we do that. We don't give because we, because we have to, but because we want to. Remember, God loves a cheerful giver. And, and, and compulsion does not equal cheerful. We give because we want to, not because we have to. And the same could be said about any and all of the service that we render to God. We don't do it because we have to, but because we want to. Man, there is dynamite right there in, in, this, in this concept. You know, in my preaching life, I've had on a number of occasions, people come to me and ask, what do you think the, the primary indicator is of a person who has reached spiritual maturity? How, how do you recognize a full-grown Christian? How do I know if I, if I have matured into Christian maturity the way God wants me to? And my response has always been, and it still is, I don't know the full answer to that question because I think there's various variables that are at play here. A number of different things are indicators and causes of spiritual maturity. But I'll tell you what I think one of them has to be. And that is that when you and I get to the point in our lives when we can say that I do what I do as a Christian not because I have to but because I want to. I think that's Christian maturity, don't you? When duties become desires. It's no longer a matter of I've got to do this. It's a matter of I get to do this. It's no matter a matter, longer a matter of obligation. It's a matter of privilege. And I'm so grateful to God. And I want to repay him every day of my life for the wonderful gift of salvation for doing for me and curing me of my spiritual sickness, just like Naaman was of his physical sickness. Now, the passage that we're looking at has been used in a lot of different ways to preach a lot of different lessons and perhaps you've heard some of them and I, I sure know I preach some of them and in my opinion sometimes there is a tendency to kind of misplace the emphasis in this uh, Old Testament narrative we may hear notice where God put the water in this account he was not cured until he went into the water and then we began preaching about baptism. Or, or notice how many times he was told to dip in the Jordan River and he, and he had to dip seven times before he was cured. And then we break into a sermon on obedience. And, and I think all of that is well placed. I think those are proper applications of this Old Testament illustration. But, and, and I have to say this, I believe that there's really two miracles in this story. The, the healing of his leprosy and most importantly, his heart has been completely changed. 
This is not the same Naaman that we read about just a few verses earlier that's wanting to argue. But I thought, this is a changed man, starting from the, from the heart and working outward. Naaman's, by the, and, and this is just a kind of a side too, Naaman's dipping procedure had nothing to do with the fact that he was cured. By that, it didn't matter whether he went into the water face first, backward, or sideways, as long as he did what the man of God had told him to do, and that was to dip seven times. So the point is, Naaman is a man who, in the beginning of this account, had a hard heart and whose will was stubborn, and he wanted to argue. And his life was a mess. And let me ask you this one question. Do you know anybody like that? Maybe you are someone like that. If so, I've got some really good news. Jesus Christ has exactly what you need. And by God's wonderful grace, Naaman became a new man. I I think that's the real miracle of this story by the time we get to the end of this narrative. He's a completely different man. Naaman is able to leave Elisha in peace, perhaps for the first time in his life. He's happy, he's cleansed of his leprosy, and he is, for obvious reasons, just overflowing with joy. His life has taken on a whole new meaning, and so has yours and mine, if we've obeyed Christ and if we've accepted his grace and become his disciples. Isn't it great to be a Christian? Let me ask that again. Isn't it great to be a Christian? How wonderful it is to know that our sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that every day as we attempt to walk into light, his blood keeps on covering all of those sins, all those mistakes that we make. read a bulletin article from one of the congregations where I used to preach for back in the Chattanooga area. This article came in, in the mail just a couple of weeks ago. And it was a wonderful article. But one guy was talking about the fact that he'd been a Christian for like 40-something years and been a preacher most of those years. And he said, there's one thing that happened to me or it was said to me when I was baptized that I have never forgotten in the almost half century. And that is a godly old man came up to me fresh out of, when I was fresh out of the waters of the baptistry. You know, hair was still wet, came in to meet the congregation. Everybody was, was hugging on him. And this old guy walked up to me who had been a, a veteran in the Lord's army for all those years, and he said, young man, brother in Christ, you'll never be sorry. And that says it all, doesn't it? We do it because we want to, not because we have to. It's a privilege to serve Christ. It's a privilege to give to his cause and to know that that's going to result in the salvation of souls. And, and, and if you decide to become a Christian today, let me tell you this. I hope that you understand that there's so much more to baptism than just being immersed in water. There is no efficacy in the water itself. You could have it chemically analyzed, and it would just be H2O like any other water. And Peter reminds us that baptism is not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, 1 Peter 3, verse 21. That just means that when you pillow your head tonight, if you become a Christian today, you can do so with clear conscience, knowing that you have done everything that God has called upon you to do, that he has stipulated in his word that you need to do in order to have your sins forgiven. And that's a wonderful thing. Conversion, which absolutely necessitates baptism, isn't about coming out of the water and exclaiming, man, that water was refreshing. That's not what it's about, and we all know that at some level. It's a matter of coming out of the water as a brand new creature in Christ. And when we do that, the old man or the old woman of sin stays in the water. They stay buried because now they're dead. 
And a brand new person comes out, and it's the new you, and it's the new me. I know that because the Bible tells me so, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And I just wanted us to look at the account of Naaman this morning and to come away appreciating that what happened to him is very similar in a lot of ways to what happens to us when we decide to follow Jesus and we put him on in baptism. Yes, absolute obedience is absolutely required. I'm going to go on record as saying, I believe with all my heart that if Naaman had been, had dipped six times, he would have spent the rest of his life as a leper. But the main emphasis, I think, is are you willing to repent and change your heart and allow God to change your life? And are you willing to do that right now while we stand and while we sing?